0: I turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and this is where we are in the Word. I've been really long the past couple of weeks because the subject matter is foundationally important to the entire context of God's Word. We watch David blow apart his life because of sin, and there's specific narrative in that adultery and the lying and the murder. But David's, David's response to being confronted by God with his sin, for me, it's, it's core and it's foundational to all of us. When you see Adam and Eve sin in the garden, we're told that they try and cover themselves. They hide from God when they're confronted with their nakedness, with their sin, and that was wrong, and the Lord drew him out, and that whole scene that goes on. David, when he's finally confronted by God in his sin, when uh, God sends Nathan to him, the first thing we see come out of David's mouth is this confession that I have sinned, and then we sat in Psalm 51 last week. It is anytime you need to have a conversation, an honest conversation with God, in regards to where you're off and where he is convicting you, that prayer of confession in Psalm 51, the prayer to be cleansed and forgiven from sin, that prayer for the joy of your salvation and your relationship with God, for it to be restored, for you to know and understand that God is not going to remove his Holy Spirit from you like he removed it from Saul but that he'll remain in you, when God restores and reconciles your relationship with him, then it's this act of prayer, Lord, now use me in the life of other people. So in the passage, we're able to use David's life as a big warning flag, and at the same time, for those of you, all of us, who find ourselves in sin and rebellion against God, there is a way for that relationship to be restored through the sacrifice of Christ and through true confession and true repentance. I was long-winded for the past couple weeks also because I want to make sure that you have a short leash in your relationship with God, that if you're feeling yourself drifting, that you feel that tug of an anchor back to Jesus every time you feel yourself starting to drift away because if you cut that anchor loose and you go do and what do what you want to do there's consequences because of sin yes there is forgiveness yes there is washing yes there is cleansing old testament new testament tells us to be careful what you sow because what you plant what you plant in your soul what you plant in your mind what you plant through your words and your behaviors it will produce a fruit, and it can produce the fruit of darkness, and it can produce the fruit of light. As we continue the rest of 2 Samuel, we're sitting in the consequences of David's sin. God cleansed him, God forgave him, but God told him very specifically, I, as God, I am going to bring about adversity in your own household, in your own family. Your sin, David, has It has instruction and teaching and permission that it gave to his kids. At the same time, we watch David as a humbled and broken man. We watch him go, you know, he was really harsh in his judgment when he was convicted by Nathan in his sin. He's like, that man needs to die, right? He's really harsh in his judgment. We watch David swing the entire other way where he is dependent on God's grace, but he he acts out... God's mercy and his grace and his relationships with other people to a level that's extreme in the sense of he kind of just hides and shelves sin, and we're going to watch that this morning. One more caveat before we read this morning's chapter. Um, This is a serious subject matter. I'm gonna keep it, I recognize the different ears that are in this room, so I'm gonna keep it at an adult level and not get into the nitty gritty, but we're dealing with abuse. When you sit in a room filled with people, you have either been the victim of abuse yourself, or you know somebody who has. This is a, this is a subject matter that touches all of our lives. It's, it's, we have to be delicate and we have to be wise. When we get to the end of this morning, I'm going to trust that you are going to be encouraged and edified through this passage. The victim of this passage, Tamar, she's my hero in this passage, and she's my hero because she points me to Jesus. She is the one who shines Jesus for me, and she is the one who reminds me of how tender Jesus is to those who are the subject of being victimized in this world and in this culture. So what... All of that in mind, we have five characters that we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to look at David, Absalom, Amnon, Jonadab, and Tamar. And we'll look at them in that order. So as we read through chapter 13, those are who we're going to go back and pick through. So it says, after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely, a beautiful sister, whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed, it means to be wrapped up, to be enveloped over his sister Tamar, that he became sick, ill, weak, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was very, a very crafty man, and he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner, becoming weaker day by day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, pretend to be weak. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please, let my sister Tamar come and give me food, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand." And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me. For no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Literally, do not do this stupidity. And I, where could I take my shame and reproach? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Literally, one of the godless in Israel. Now, therefore... "'Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you.' However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, "'Arise and be gone.' So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now she had a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom, the sheep shears in "'had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. "'So Absalom invited all the king's sons. "'Then Absalom came to the king and said, "'Kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. "'Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. "'But the king said to Absalom, "'No, my son, let us all not all go now, "'lest we be a burden to you.' "'Then he urged him, but he would not go.' And he blessed him. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? And Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass, while they were on the way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay down on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose, that, uh, suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead, for by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. As your servant said, so it is. So it was. As soon as he had finished speaking, the king's sons indeed came. They lifted up their voice and wept, and the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. That's his grandpa. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. All right, we're going to walk through the major players of this chapter. Thematically, just where we are in 2 Samuel, David and Absalom are the major players. They're the major characters. They are the lives that we're going to continue to watch after this chapter. I mentioned before that Tamar, for me, is the hero of this passage, and I'll give definition, but we'll deal with her last. So first is David. David, again, he is a, an adulterer, who has been forgiven. He is a murderer who has been forgiven. And as a recipient of that forgiveness and that grace, again, you can sit in Psalm 51 as we did last week, He's, he has a broken heart, a contrite heart, a confessional heart, a repentant heart. David, but in that life experience for him, that's again, that's set him too far on the side of inaction. We're going to watch David for the rest of his life, whether he's erring on the side of grace or he is, when he has to stand in this position as judge and offer righteous judgment in his context, he fails to do so because he's too far on the side of empathy. I have to watch in my own personality. Um, I know what I have been forgiven of. I know who God is. I knew I know who I am apart from him. I know who I am in him. I understand human behavior. Again, you know, it's anybody who's been serving any time in ministry, it's not very long before all of us have the same sentence that there's pretty much nothing that can shock us because we understand the depths of sin in the human heart. That in my personality, I recognize this heart in David. That can put me on the side too far of being merciful and gracious when I need to be confrontational in regards to sin in somebody's life. Now, for me, that doesn't land in, like, major categories. But often, as you're looking to the Lord for discernment in prayer, you see something that's going on in somebody else's life, and you're asking the Lord, would you like me to step in and have a conversation, or would or are you dealing with it and I just need to remain quiet. And again, God has to give us discernment in those in those things. But we're watching David here. David's house is way out of order. Amnon is the crown prince. So he is the firstborn son of David. That means he is in line to the throne. So David is not just dealing with his household as a father. He's also dealing with his household as a king, and he's got to sit in the politics of it. So we can sit in, you know, you watch, there's news articles right now. President's son is doing stuff, right? And has a messed up life and how the president of our nation has to come along and clean up the son's behavior so it doesn't impact him politically. We watch this in the soap opera of the royal family in England, right? I have no idea why Americans are so obsessed with British monarchy, but we are, because it's a huge tabloid soap opera. It's messy, but in that family mess, you have to deal with it politically. So why David doesn't do anything, we don't know. What's interesting is at the end of this, David is tearing his clothes in mourning, in lament, weeping bitterly at the loss of his sons, at the, just the news of that, and this understanding that, all right, not all the sons died, but only Amnon died. David is going through an extended mourning process associated with the loss of his son. What response do we see with David in regards to his daughter? He's mad, as he should be, but does he do anything? How do you think Tamar feels? Like this is hard because as dad, David, you have one son violently impacting a daughter. And you watch the culture of the day. You watch the opinion and the worth and the value that was put on women in this day. So Tamar is a commodity for David. David has married multiple women. Many of those women are the result of treaties with other kingdoms. So Absalom's mom is the daughter of the king of Bashur that he just fled from. So Absalom, as a son, his dad is king and his grandpa is king of another nation. When you look at David's relationship with his daughter, she's a commodity to be bargained with other kingdoms. And when you look at what Amnon did to her, he just damaged her price. It's an evil, sad in in stark contrast to God's heart to value another human's life as a commodity. And for those of you women who may have felt like a lack of relationship with your father, as Tamar did, man with your mom, with your parents, whatever that relationship with your parents looks like, this is totally foreign to me. I have a fabulous relationship with my parents. But again, Tamar is going to, again, she she becomes this image of God sees her, God knows her, and God loves her, and we watch her hold on to her faith in God through this whole process. But David is way out in left field. And how much of that is because of his sin, because of his culture, because of his upbringing, because of the politics of the day, all of that is weighing into his inaction when he ought to have been the protector and the comforter for his daughter that just suffered violence. He ought to have removed himself from that position of judge because of that conflict, but he ought to have brought his son before a trial and have suffered you know, according to the laws of the land in its day, but he refused to do so because that has political impact in his life. So he didn't do anything because of consequences and what just happened, or because of the consequences of his own sin, which is causing even further inaction in his life. When we look at Absalom, Absalom can feel like the hero of this chapter because he did something. He walks along his sister. What happened? Is this the result of Amnon? He takes her into his house and becomes her provider and becomes her protector. And the counsel that he gives to her, and we'll press into this as we sit with Tamar, but the counsel of peace And the counsel of don't take this to your heart, don't be identified by this thing that just happened to you, don't be owned by being a victim, don't take this to your heart, is great counsel. So we see him stand in that gap for her. We see him counsel her with wisdom and just the brief counsel that we get. We see that righteous anger as a brother against her victimizer. But the issue with Absalom is we travel through the rest of the narrative, Absalom's a mixed bag. So some of his behavior, we could look at this chapter as he's the hero, but on the other side of it, he's also a son of a king who is positioning himself to be the next king. Absalom's the third-born son of David. So we have Amnon is the crown prince. He is in line to be the king. Kaliab is a, the second son of David, and we never hear anything about his life. The assumption is, is that he died when he was young. That means Absalom, as the third-born son, is runner-up. So as Absalom is sitting in the righteous anger in regards to what Amnon did to his sister Tamar, Absalom is also looking at the political convenience of this. If I execute judgment, the just judgment, and execute Amnon for his violence towards my sister, I'm now the crown prince. And that is a true and heavy motivator in Absalom's life, and we'll, we'll pause the rest of the narrative on him because we'll be following Absalom and David for the next few chapters. So we sit with Amnon. Amnon is the pathetic man of this chapter and this story for sure. But Amnon's issue is he says, Amnon has an attraction to rebellion. Amnon has an attraction to something that he can't have. He is looking at his half his sister with lust. I want this woman. In the law, in the Old Testament, you can go sit in Leviticus 18, this relationship between half-brother, half-sister, it's incest. It is against the law of God. It's also against, it's something that the cultures around the nation of Israel were participating in, and it's something that God specifically commanded them, you shall not do this. And that's why when Tamar says to him, don't be stupid and don't be a godless fool to Amnon, this is what he is doing. But in Amnon's heart, his fantasy has overwhelmed reality. It's it's this picture of, uh, I read a great line and it said, in Amnon, love, sorry, lust is masquerading as love. As we sit in this statement, he is looking at a woman that is his sister. This is improper. This is a relationship that you cannot have. And he is overcome and overwhelmed by his desire to have what he can't have. So it says, and he's saying that I love her and I'm overwhelmed by love for this woman. And we can apply this in our our lives when we are so... Overwhelmed by a thought like, I have to have this, I have to do that, and it becomes blinding, the, that rebellion becomes blinding to what is reality, we have lust masquerading itself as love. Hold your place here. If you can turn there quickly, we're going to look at First Corinthians 13. Because 1 Corinthians 13 gives us the definition for biblical love The Bible defines God as love for us. So the text in 2 Samuel is saying Amnon loves Tamar. Out of Amnon's mouth is saying I love Tamar. But there is no reality in regards to what the definition of love is that that is being expressed in him. Because if he really loved Tamar, none of the events that we just read through would have occurred. This is what the Word of God says in regards to love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come which is Jesus, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Boy, I hope that's your hope. Trust in that promise. There's coming a day when you are going to see love, God personified face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Look at that promise. How much does God know about you? Can you imagine that day that you're going to get to know God just as you are known? And now abide faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Back to 2 Samuel. So sitting in that definition, that biblical definition of love, is there anything about Amnon that is expressing that truth? Nothing. His lust is masquerading in his own mind and his own heart as love. As he is communicating to those around him, I love this woman. No, you don't. And this is is a major picture of once he got what he wanted, And he reached out, and he took it by force. Now, the taking by force, it's a behavior that he's learned from his dad. His dad, as king, took a woman that was not his to have. His dad, as king, took the life of Uriah to remove an inconvenience out of his life to cover his sin. Yes, David is repentant. Yes, he is clean, but his actions are something that his son learned from. And when Jonadab came there, he said, you're, you're, you, you're the son of the king. Why are you weak? Take what you want. So when, when Amnon finally takes what he wants and listens to that advice, The result in his own soul is the hatred that has always been there, the sin, the darkness, whatever that man had going on in his soul, that is what was thrown up to the surface. Because now when he looked at this woman that was the object that he defined as love, now she's the object of hate. So that the hate that he had with her, and this is he hated her, hated her, very much hated like. It's over exceeding the Hebrew language, is like hate as much as you can hate. So the hate that was thrown up into his conscience was miles beyond the lust that he had, the love that he thought that he had. Now, we can sit in the consequences. I want to make sure that we have uh, plenty of time to spend with Tamar. So you can sit in the major implications for Amnon's heart, that major teaching, the major application to pull out of that is just have that check and balance of your heart when you are desiring something, that you're in relationship with the Lord and that you have a check and a balance with him, that you're, you know, you're longing for something, you're desiring something, it's, it's something that you think about every single day. Make sure that you have that check in your relationship with the Lord, that that is truly something that the Lord is causing you and driving you towards, and it's not the voice of the devil. Or your own flesh that's masquerading as something that it's not. And that gets us to Jonah down. So Jonadab is Amnon's cousin. He's a nephew of David, and clearly he's sitting in the position of an advisor as we see him at the end of the chapter giving advice to David in in regards to what was going on with Absalom killing Amnon. But in the beginning, here you have Jonadab is giving this wise and skillful counsel to Amnon, but he's the voice of the devil. So when you sit in Genesis chapter three and you have Adam and Eve there in the garden, here you have the serpent that is crafty, that is cunning, that is coming in with wisdom and with skill and with reasoning and twisting the word of God so that Adam and Eve had the permission to do what they wanted to do, which was disobey God. So that's in Genesis three. We're watching Jonadab image that exact same cunning personality in Amnon's life. And again, the warning here is this, this guy's Amnon's friend, but the friend, quote, unquote, is really, it's the devil masquerading as a friend. His advice, his counsel is not godly. It's all of the flesh. And whether he has some kind of political motivation behind the scenes, who knows? But ultimately, his counsel is evil. Jonah, or Amnon, you are the king's son. You can have whatever you want to have. Here's an idea of how you can get what you want. And again, the voice of the devil in Amnon's life. The devil is speaking to all of us every single day. We're told that we are engaged in battle and the spiritual warfare. We have the thoughts of our own mind and our own heart and our own life experiences to process through. We have the voice of the culture and society that conforms us and gives us all different kinds of permissions regardless of what time and what country people live in. And always there's this spiritual battle, this spiritual conflict that is going on where the enemy is whispering to us permission for, giving us permission and ideas of how to get what we want in contrast and opposition to God. So all of this is warnings in regards to keeping that short leash and that intimate relationship with the Lord. We watch David not, and we're sitting in his consequences. As we sit in this chapter, we're watching multiple people continue in their sin and not listening to the warnings that they have in their life, but listening to all the different contrary voices. All right. Now, the hero of the passage, and this is why. Tamar's fabulous to me, and this is why she's fabulous. She is a daughter of the king, which came with a lot of privilege. She's also described as lovely. So, on the exterior, she is a lovely, beautiful person. When I run across, uh, you know, this, this passage is a trigger for me. There's other descriptions of women in the Bible when it's identifying them as beautiful. But this is a repetitious prayer of mine and a reminder when I run across this context. This is my personal opinion. Regardless of where my wife is, my perspective is she's the most beautiful person in the room. She is a stunning person, I think there is a constant prayer that I have for her, is that the physical beauty that she does have, that that wouldn't attract the attention of men or women that would seek her harm. I pray the same thing for my sons, for my daughter. I pray this for you. I pray this for me. Amnon was seeking to do Tamar damage, and he was successful in doing it. But Tamar, she was born lovely. She was born beautiful. She is not, we're not told in this passage that she is pursuing the attention of her brother, but just by who she is in her physical per- person, she is receiving unwanted attention, which, especially for women in our culture, this is a common daily occurrence in many of your lives where you feel like you were receiving unwanted attention from men. And the exact same thing can happen on the side of the male. Pray this. Actively engage. God, protect me. Protect wife. Protect husband. Protect children, siblings, friends. Lord, blind us from the eyes of those that would do us harm. And for me, I feel that God has been tremendously faithful in answering that prayer in my life. But here, Tamar is this beautiful person described on the outside. She's also a beautiful person on the inside. Her dad gives her a command and an instruction. What does she do? She goes and does it. Amnon's probably in his 20s. Tamar, as a young virgin daughter of the queen, is probably in her teens. So she is... David doesn't know he is putting her in harm's way. She doesn't know that she's going in harm's way. But she's seeking to go and be obedient to the command of her dad. Now, this whole thing with Amnon being weak, there's an idea that because he wants to see this food prepared in his presence, that he's conveying that his sickness might be because he's being poisoned. So let me see my faithful sister who would never poison me. Let me see her prepare my meal in front of my eyes and let me eat food from her hand. This word for food, it's, it's a Hebrew uh, idea for heart. So it's some kind of heart-healthy kind of food. This is a, a medicinal kind of food. Hey, somebody's got the flu, this is what you feed him. Somebody's got a cold, this is what you feed him. He's ill let me eat food from the presence of this loyal individual so that I know that I'm not being poisoned is, is the pretending that's going on behind the scenes. But it conveys uh, an aspect of Tamar's character. And then when she's confronted with, she's been put in a circumstance at the direction of her dad, unbeknownst to him that it's dangerous, Amnon sends the servants out, which is you know, isolating her even further, so that Amnon could fulfill his evil. But there, as she is confronted with that evil, she stands in boldness and she stands in truth, and she preaches the truth. And when she is, she's trying to wake up Amnon from his sin. He is the one who refuses to hear the voice of truth and continues to hear the voice of the devil and of his flesh and the circumstance. But what she does is she quotes the word of God to him. What you were suggesting is against the law of God. Do not be a stupid man. What you were seeking to do... Ought not to be named among the children of Israel. And again, he, there's a whole history that feeds into that in their context. What you were doing, if you proceed with this, you, are no, you would be no different than all of the godless men and women that are around us that were to stand and be lights to. You're going to image back to them, not God, not the, uh, not, not the God of Israel, but you're going to image to them themselves. So here she sits in in the circumstance that she is confronted with, which is putting her in physical harm, and she's under that threat, under that anxiety, all of that, and there she is faithfully. The Word of God is pouring out of her in the circumstance. The only way that the Word of God pours out of you in the midst of anxiety and stress and pressure is if that's what you've put into you to begin with. It wasn't, it's, it's, The Holy Spirit is bringing it out in the moment, and you can't bring out if it wasn't already put in, right? Again, it's a testimony to her character. The idea that she expresses to Amnon that, hey, don't do this. Let's go talk to Dad, and Dad won't withhold me from you. It's seen as... a way for her to get out of the circumstance that she's finding herself in, not that David would go along with marrying a son and daughter together. All of that fails. She is the victim of this abuse. And in this, again, this is a, this is a culture and a time where if a man goes and takes a woman that the culture is that man is now required to marry that woman. We see this in the Bible in a couple of different passages. Again, it's something that occurs in that age. It's something that occurs in, in modern society, not in our society, but definitely throughout the world. But that's what she is sitting in as she's responding to Amnon, the evil of you sending me away. You just took what wasn't yours and by sending me away is compounding and even more evil than what you just did to me in this moment. Again, in this, she still has clarity, she still has truth, as she's sitting in all of the trauma that she's just endured. And when Amnon sends her away, she doesn't hide in her shame, but there is a very public mourning. Here is a garment that identifies one of the virgin daughters of the king, and for that garment to be rent, she's letting everybody know around her, something has happened to me. She is putting ashes on her head, this sign of lament. Her hand is on her head as this, as this covering. Again, it's a sign of lament and a sign to all around her of something happened. She didn't keep it internal. The, the, the counsel that... Absalom offers to her is directly from the heart of God. And this is why Tamar for me is such a hero because she, we would give her every reason to identify herself as a victim her whole life. We would give her every reason to be a maladjusted adult, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is not easy subject matter at all. But the counsel that Absalom gives to her and this whole idea of peace, it is what God comes and he communicates into our life. Peace. Be still. Know that I am God. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will walk with you. I won't abandon you. I will take this evil and I will bring about my good in your life. You may see it in the flesh. You will definitely see it all for all eternity. We don't have any of Tamar's future. But what I can understand and what I can see of her soul and just who she was before this act in her life, she is clearly scarred. It is said that she remains desolate in in Absalom's home, which the idea is that she remains an unplowed field is the idea that when you look at a field that is not producing fruit, it's unplowed, right? When you look at a woman in this culture, an unmarried woman, more than likely she remained unmarried her whole life because of the damage that was done to her socially, culturally, culturally. More than likely, her womb did not bear the fruit of a child, and she lived with that her whole life. But out of what we see in her behavior in this chapter, I have absolutely no doubt that she walked alongside of God in that trauma in her life and walked a life of victory in God. And this is is where we're going to end. Turn to Luke chapter 7 really quick. And this is why... We run through all kinds of very atrocious stories and circumstances that it's really easy to want to question God. We're told by God in his word that the circumstances, the consequences of sin that we just read in that chapter in chapter 13 are the result of David's behavior, that God is the one that is allowing this behavior to occur in David's household. God has removed his protection. God removed discernment from David. David didn't have wise discernment in regards to the behavior of his son, Amnon. David did not have wise discernment in regards to what Absalom was planning. David's missing the discernment of God. God is withholding that discernment. So a lot can say, well, what happened to Tamar is all, all God's fault. And it's not God's fault. He's sovereign. He's in control. There are times that circumstances happen when we want to say, why God? And we don't have any understanding for, but they always lead us to this position of, God, I believe that you're love. All those things, all those characteristics that we just read in 1 Corinthians 13, that is God's behavior towards Tamar, even in the midst of what she was subjected to. We're just gonna read through this, but Tamar gives me... I want, I want you to have the mind and the heart of Christ as we look at a woman who is damaged by the culture around her. I want you just to see Jesus' heart uh, for another woman in a similar circumstance, that as we walk out of here, you walk out of here in trusting the Lord regardless of what has happened, what may happen in the future, that God is good, God is love, And he's right here with us. Verse 36 of Luke 7 says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she saw that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Regardless of what sin this woman is involved in, many believe it to be prostitution. It's conjecture. She is sitting in the product of potentially her behavior, more than likely the behavior that has been forced on her as a result of others, And those who are there to represent the heart of God to the culture are looking at Tamar, they're looking at this woman just as David and Amnon and Absalom and Jonadab were looking at Tamar in their culture and their time. This woman is worthless. She has no more value to me because she has lost her virginity by force. That's an evil heart, and that's a dark, dark heart, and that's the opposite heart of Christ. That's the same heart that this Pharisee is portraying to this other woman, but look at our Savior, verse 40. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, And the other fifty. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He said, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman. You have, picture this scene. He's reclined at a table, Eastern culture, feet are behind him. We already have the descriptions of her worship, adoration, the repentance, the confession, everything that she has going on in her heart. And Jesus is having this conversation with Simon knowing what's going on in his heart. And now he turns to the woman at his feet, but he's talking to Simon. And I can imagine Jesus in this woman's eyes meeting. You have rightly judged. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you really see her? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman, she's anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven and those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves who is this who even forgives sins it is our very god in the flesh then he said to the woman your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, that counsel from Absalom to Tamar, peace. It's the same word of God to us. Regardless if your sin is your own and it's your own behavior or the sin that has occurred upon you and to you and you were a victim, God's word to us regardless of our circumstance, is peace. Because he's the prince of peace. He is our tranquility. He is the one that tells us to be still. He is the one, I am there with you. He knows, he understands, and he promises as you seek him, as you keep knocking and keep seeking and keep pressing into him, he will help you not be identified by what you have done, and not be identified by what has been done to you, not be identified with all the other labels that people want to place upon you. He is standing there in our lives. Don't take these external circumstances to your heart. Give me your heart, and I will transform it I will clean it and clear the darkness and prune the pruning that needs to occur. I will take the evil that you have done and the evil that has been done to you, and I will bring about my good in your life. I will image to you, my Father, trust me and hope in